Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Okay, we might continue with our service now. I just had my first offer of someone offering to help serve. How good is that? <laughs> Only announced it 30 seconds earlier. What an encouragement. Um, we're going to come to our Bible reading now, but before I read, let me, let me pray for us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for inspiring all scripture by the Holy Spirit. By your Spirit, help us so to hear your holy word that we might be equipped for every good work Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So our first reading is from Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Our second reading is from Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11. Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, 
generals and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Thanks very much, Nicole. Let me add my welcome to that of Lachlan and also Nicole. Welcome to City Light Church, North Adelaide. I'm Simon, uh, lead pastor here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Um, If you've joined us, uh, perhaps this is your first week with us, you've joined us towards the end of a series in the book of Revelation. Uh, We've got this week and one week to go and then we move on to something else. Uh, But uh, you've joined us towards the end of this, um, I don't know, amazing text of scripture. the book of Revelation. Um, Many of you will know that um, I like to get us thinking about a little question or an idea at the beginning and get us talking amongst ourselves. Um, So here we go. Um, And again, I always preface this by saying this may or may not have anything to do with what I'm about to say. Um, The last movie I went to see was uh, the film um, Minions, The Rise of Gru. Anyone else seen that? it's really great. Um, anyway, um, went to see that. Uh, I don't really go to the movies very often, but that's what I went to do. I find myself with small children going to see small kids' movies, um, and they're quite funny, and I like the adult bits in them. Anyway, that's just the preface to say, um, I usually time my entry into the movie theatre towards the end of all the stuff that comes at the beginning, you know, the adverts and the, pre- the previews and things like that, which sort of go for like five hours, you know, like... Um, Turn to the person next to you and say, do you enjoy the previews, you know, all that stuff? Do you time it so that you enter just as the main movie's starting? Or would you prefer, rather than previews, for there to be like, I don't know, news, you know, like updates on what's going on in the world? Um, Maybe then it's slightly useful. Anyway, have a chat to the person next to you. News to start with, previews, or you just want to skip it all together and just get to the main event. Have a quick chat to the person next to you. I'll give you 40 seconds. Go. All right, everybody, let's come back together. I don't know, am I on? Let's, uh, let's come back together. Can you hear me? No. I don't think I've turned myself off. While we're sorting out that, oh, there we go, that sounds pretty good. Um, who's like, who's... Uh, I get there late, so I don't have to watch all the stuff at the start. Anyone? Yeah, a few people here. Smart, smart. You're in my camp. Intellectual, yeah. Uh, anyone's like, who loves the previews? Like, you know, you paid for them. Want to get there, you know? <laughs> Value for money, you know? Yeah, there you go. Um, who would like, prefer maybe just some useful information at the beginning? No, most of it. Like the news. What about like a news reel or something like that at the beginning? And there's no one wants that. Okay, there we go. Well, I'll feed that back to Hoyts and, you know, like... <laughs> Those people. Wow, wow. That's it. You can ch- we'll chat to Nicole after and see if we can help her out with that. No, anyway, no. Fair enough. Let's pray. Like I said, that may have something to do with what we're talking about today. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for all the good things you give us. Uh, we thank you, Father. We, just, we thank you for the rain uh, that has been falling um, on our city and, and many parts of our country. And we just thank you for the way that you do provide us with that nourishment uh, for our land. And uh, we also thank you, Father, for uh, this opportunity we have to sit together under your word. And we pray that by your spirit and uh, through your word, we would see Jesus we would hear Jesus, and we would love Jesus, and we ask it in his name. Amen. In the early years of the Second World War, in a matter of just a few weeks or months, the Nazis managed to conquer vast amounts of Europe. Um, the conquering of the Nazis came really close to uh, places like the UK and into France and places like that. Um, lots of Europe was under the occupation of Nazi forces. And there was very little hope. Humanly speaking, early days of the world, Second World War, there was really little hope. It didn't, like, didn't look like anything was going to stop the advance of Nazi Germany. Uh, the UK... Um, other nations were ill-equipped. They weren't ready for um, what was happening. And Hitler was proclaiming that his Third Reich would last for 1,000 years. Wisdom of the day seemed to suggest that those living in occupied territory under the Nazi rule, the best thing you could do was just kind of like fit in. Like just go along with it. Don't resist it even collaborate, because basically they were here to stay. But what a difference it would have made, right, in those years, if into movie theatres of the day, the people living in occupied territories, instead of seeing newsreels of the latest news of the war on the big screen, instead they saw pictures of the future, what was to come. So rather than images of the advance of the Nazis across, German, across Europe, they saw images of what was to come years down the track. So imagine if on those newsreels was a film of D-Day, a film of the Allied troops landing on the beaches of Normandy and storming through France. Or what if there was a newsreel of the fall of Berlin and the death of Hitler? or a newsreel of the Nuremberg trials, right, where those great ones, actually, who people feared so much, the chiefs of the Nazi forces, no, they were actually in the dock, they were imprisoned, and then executed. What a difference that would have made, right? It would have steeled the people of the day. We're not simply gonna give in. We, we aren't gonna collaborate, because the evil is doomed, and one day it'll all fall. So let's keep resisting. Let's not give in. John, the apostle, as you know, is writing the book of Revelation to Christians living in the late first century AD who were very much under pressure. They were living in occupied territory. The seven letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation, chapters two and three, which set up the whole thing, including the vision in chapter one, were written to seven churches in Asia, modern day Turkey, ordinary Christians living in that part of the world, and they were under Roman occupation. The Roman Empire was in charge in an earthly sense. But John is actually saying in the book of Revelation, the occupation is not just Romans, it's actually much more serious. 
You're not just occupied by the Romans. There's a spiritual occupation that's kind of taking place in the whole world. The great enemy is not simply the Roman emperor and all of his minions. It's actually the devil depicted in Revelation as a red dragon and all his allies, the two beasts of chapter 13, described again here in chapter 19 as the beast and the false prophet, standing for anti-God authority and anti-God ideology. And by a mix of brute force and guile, the axis of evil has persuaded people to turn away from God and to build Babylon, a worldly society independent from God. And actually, this is our world today in the 21st century. We live in occupied territory. We live in Babylon. And there's this great pressure to fit in, just go along with it all, to collaborate. And the devil comes at us somewhat indirectly, right? He uses his agents. There's the agent of anti-God authority, the first beast. He uses an iron fist attempting to persuade believers to submit to his will. You know, we'll crush you unless you recognize the ultimate authority, whether that's the state or the emperor or a party or a dictator, but not the Lord Jesus. Or in a more subtle form, anti-God authority, you know, the boss at work who says, if you go along with this, don't expect to get far in this company or in this school or wherever you work. Anti-God authority. Or the second beast, the false prophet, anti-God ideology. Um, He goes about persuading people of the lies of false religion and worldly thinking. There are some things, right, in this world which we are kind of simply not even allowed to think, let alone sort of say out loud. The truth that is unquestioned, right, that every individual must have the right to define themselves, to declare how they will live without any possibility that they may be wrong. The lie of secularism, that there is no place for religion at all, certainly. The only place for religion is in the private world. It has no place in the public debate or public policy. The lie that there's no truth, anti-God ideology. Huge pressure to conform, to just kind of go along with it. The pressure to conform doesn't always come through brute force, but the subtle work of the two beasts. But often it comes through the attractive charms of the prostitute, Babylon. We met her last week in a worldly society that says, come with me, I'll show you a good time. You're missing out. If you really want to enjoy life, you've got to do this. Everyone else is doing it, just join in. You know, and we looked last week at this idea of selling the idea of a love for pleasure, a love for profit, a love for popularity, and how hard it is to resist those combined forces the beast, the false prophet, and Babylon. And it seems, I don't know if you can remember right back to weeks two, three, and four of our series. Those seven letters written to the seven churches, there's a number of believers who are already kind of beginning to compromise. And we're prone to that, right? And John writes this letter to show hidden realities. And in many ways, he kind of takes us to the movie theatre. You know, John says you can, you can see all around you, right, the might and the power of the devil and all of his allies, and it's all saying fit in, join in, just go with it. 
But John says, no, let me show you hidden realities. Revelation begins with a vision of a conquering king, Jesus Christ, already reigning in heaven. He's defeated the devil. There's a throne in heaven, right? And someone is seated on that throne. It's Jesus. He is the sovereign, ruling savior. And now at the end of the book, John takes us to the movies. And he says, let me show you your future. Some newsreels of the future. Evil will be crushed. The beast, the false prophet and the dragon, they'll come crashing down. So it makes sense to resist them. Be faithful to Jesus and patiently endure. Last week, if you were here, we kind of basically looked at the first newsreel, if you like. We saw Babylon, worldly society that looked, didn't it, like so secure and permanent, immovable, and yet it came crashing down before our very eyes. And that vision, chapter 19, verse 7, ended with this wonderful announcement that the, the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready all dressed up, God's people ready to be reunited with their Lord Jesus Christ. And we're expecting as we turn the page into the next chapter that we'll have a description of the the marriage of Christ and his people. But we've got to wait. Come back next week for that bit. Before the marriage can happen, there are some preparations that need to be done. The marital home isn't ready yet. Imagine, you know, you want to take your bride to the marital home, but it's covered in mould and there's filth and there's rubbish from your former life all over the place, I don't know. Some cleaning up to do. You've got to get rid of the junk. Before the marriage of Jesus and his people, he wants to prepare the marital home, the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. Evil must be purged entirely. We've seen Babylon fall, Now we're about to see the judgment of the beast and the false prophet. That's the first little section we'll look at today. Then comes the judgment of the dragon, the devil, and then finally the judgment of the dead. So if you're a note taker, uh, judgment of the beast and the false prophet, judgment of the devil or Satan, judgment of the dead. Three big points. We begin end of chapter 19. I hope you have it open in front of you. End of chapter 19 with the judgment of the beast and the false prophet. We're taken into the movie theater. And John says, chapter 19, verse 11, I saw. Every time you see those words, I saw, it's like another newsreel is being played um, in the movie theater. I saw heaven standing open. Heaven in the book of Revelation, by the way, is not another place sort of up there, another spiritual kind of universe. It represents the sphere of spiritual reality. When heaven is open, we see things as they really are. A full picture. And the newsreel plays before John. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. What we have here is a vision of Jesus Christ riding forth as a conquering king. The clues are all there. It's Jesus, the risen Jesus being talked about. Heaps of connections here with the cosmic Christ we met in Revelation chapter 1. Sitting on a white horse, he comes to judge, to wage war. Heaps different, right? So his first coming. 
Remember, uh, the world is in rebellion against God and then God comes into the world in the person of his son. So what are we expecting? We're kind of looking for him to crush evil and rebellion, which is bad news for everyone because by nature, every one of us, we're rebels, right? But when Jesus comes for the first time, he doesn't come riding on a white charger, he comes riding on a donkey in humility a donkey that will lead him to the cross. He's the suffering servant. He says, I've not come to condemn the world, I've come to save the world. I've come to bring peace between humanity and God, an amnesty for those in rebellion, and I will take upon myself, Jesus says, the punishment that is deserved for all of our rebellion against him, which he dealt with on the cross when he died for our sins, Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Jesus, after rising from the dead some 2,000 years ago, made it clear that he was coming back a second time. And when he comes, he comes to judge evil and deal with evil once and for all. And there's a delay There's a delay between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And in this period between his first and second coming, well, there's an amnesty. There's an opportunity for us to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is patient at the moment. But that period won't go on forever. God's kingdom will one day come in all its fullness when Jesus comes again. And here we have in Revelation 19 a vision of Jesus Second coming, verse 13, he is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, reminding us that the one who comes to judge has already faced judgment and conquered death. And verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him. I take it this is believers and angels, also on white horses, uh, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. It's an impressive sight. But have a look more closely. They don't look much like an army, right? Verse 14, they're dressed in fine linen, white and clean. I don't know if you know this, but it's August 2022. That means Christmas is really soon. Anyone done Christmas shopping yet? Anyone? No. Been too much much time at the movies. Anyway, um, because we're getting into this part of the year, right, where we're almost kind of in that mode of like, maybe you're about to graduate from university. You know, maybe there's those end of year functions which are beginning, beginning to be thought about. There are some people in our church who are looking forward to getting married really soon. And so as a result, right, we're looking through our wardrobes for the ball gowns. We're looking for the, I don't know, the cocktail dress, the lounge suit, perhaps even a tuxedo. That's what these people in the vision are wearing, yeah? They're dressed for a party. They're dressed for a wedding. They don't look like much of an army, right? And they don't have any weapons, just party clothes. The only weapon amongst them, verse 13, 14, 15, sorry, is, the mouth, is in the mouth of the commander-in-chief of this army, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This army, right, looks completely ill-equipped, No weapons and cocktail dresses. Maybe tuxedos for the blokes. I don't know. And yet, verse 17, there is another vision, another newsreel on the screen. 
And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God. They're about to have a feast and we know what that means. God's enemies will be crushed. There'll be this terrible battle and a terrible defeat for them. They'll be crushed and at the end, all the vultures come swooping in and feed on all the dead bodies. And sure enough, it happened in the vision. Verse 19, another newsreel. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. I mean, just imagine, right? All the kings of the earth, all the great ones, all lined up with all of their incredible power at their disposal. I don't know, tanks, RPGs. I learned that from my son who goes around kind of going RPG, you know, like RPGs, MK47s. I mean, we don't do guns in our house, but guns are in our house. You know, Bazzy walks up to me and goes, like, M4, I, got you, I got you with my MK47, Dad. I'm supposed to go along with it. Anyway, tanks, RPGs, MK47s, nuclear warheads, right? Up against the Lord Jesus with all these motley party, like party goers. Doesn't look like it's going to be a fair fight. Do you agree? And we're expecting this dramatic battle. But you're looking at the movie screen and it's a complete anticlimax. Verse 20. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. That's it. These great battle This great battle is not coming in the future. At the end of time, the battle that was described in chapter 16 as Armageddon, that's not the great battle. The great battle has already been won. When the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, the battle of Calvary was the big one. That was the moment when Satan's power was crushed, when in the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, God disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the what? The the cross. Amen? At the cross, Satan's power was crushed, and anyone who trusts in Jesus, he can't touch He's defeated, so there is no need for another big victory at the end of time, just the need to work out the consequences of the victory back at Calvary, one through Jesus' death and resurrection. So verse 20, both these beasts, anti-God authority in all its forms, and anti-God ideology in all its forms, are thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Only one weapon was needed. The sword in the mouth of Jesus, which we know is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news, the word of God. You know, by a word of command, God created the heavens and the earth. By a word of command, Jesus calmed the storm and he raised the dead to life. And with a word of command, evil is defeated. Worldly power, worldly thinking, very intimidating today. But look at the newsreels of the future. With a word, gone. Then we move into Revelation chapter 20, where we first see the judgment 
of Satan. And Nicole is going to bring us our second reading, or third reading for today, uh, from Revelation chapter 20. Thanks, Nicole. Yes, so Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Thanks, Nicole. Keep that part of God's word open. Um, so we've looked at... Um, we're thinking about what it looks like to live in enemy-occupied territory. We've seen already just before that uh, God's judgment upon the beast and the false prophet. Now we turn to point two, the judgment of Satan. And we see in the movie theater another newsreel. So verse one, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. And as we keep watching this part of the newsreel, we can see the angel seize the dragon, Satan, and bind him for 1,000 years. 
It's during that time, verse 3, that he's prevented from devouring the nations. And in the same 1,000-year period, uh, dead Christians are raised to life and reign with Jesus. And at the end of it, verse 7, Satan is released. He deceives the world, he gathers the powers for a great battle with God, and then poof, he's crushed. Verse 10, okay? That's the snapshot. Now, you may note, I was going to say really quickly, um, Anyone listen to the Undeceptions podcast with John Dixon? It's a really helpful podcast, like me and Sam. Yeah, there you go. But, um, oh, there you go. A couple of people. In, in this podcast, it's a really good podcast listening to, where he tries to sort of undeceive like, things we've hold to, and, but maybe we don't get them quite right. Anyway, during, there's a, he does this thing where he gets to a point where he goes, I'm now going to give you like a five-minute Jesus. So you can kind of check out at that point if you're not really interested. Um, and then at the end he goes, I'm now finished. You can come back with me. I'm done. Um, anyway, I'm not really going to do that right now, but we're going to get into some little bit of tricky stuff here. And if you're going to like, you can maybe fall asleep for a minute um, if you want to, and then I'll say, come back to life again. Anyway, you may know in this part of God's word, there, there has been incredible amounts of ink spilt on these verses. Arguably, more ink than on any other part of God's word in all of history. So there's a debate among Christians as to what is referred to as the millennium, the thousand-year period that is mentioned here in Revelation chapter 20. The result is significant division among Christians who cling to one view over the other around what people think is going to happen in the future and in these times. Um, I'm told there was a church sign once that appeared um, outside a church building in the US that read this, we are a pre-millennial, dispensationalist, pre-tribulation, single rapture church, and we welcome all those who are one with us in Christ. (laughs) I'm not going to confuse us with all the uh, terminology and all of the interpretations, but I want to give us three this morning, three quite simple explanations of the three main views. Basically, what the debate boils down to is chronology, and in particular, how this thousand-year period, by, and also just to say, it's actually not a literal thousand years, it's a long period of time. That's what the idea is. How does this 1,000 years relate to Jesus' second coming? Okay? Here are the three main views. I'll try and be brief. First, we have the pre-millennial view. You can see a diagram on the screen. Pre-millennial view, which gives rise to the phrase pre-millennialism. Can you say that with me? Pre-millennialism. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Christ returns. So what this, this theory is, Christ returns pre, right? Prior to the thousand years. So he comes before the thousand years. He then raises Christians who have already died, And Jesus reigns physically on earth with his raised people, right? And the raised Christians rule with Jesus for a very long time. It's a period of peace and things like that. Most people on the planet profess faith in Jesus during this thousand year, kind of years after Jesus' return. And only right at the end does Satan get released from captivity. In that time, some will turn away from Christ. And after that great battle and bam, Satan is crushed. Yeah? Makes sense, premillennialism. That's one view. I can't see any part of the Bi- other part of the Bible that supports this view. Um, it's pretty flimsy. I'm not a fan. The second view is postmillennialism. Um, again, 
Jesus comes after the 1,000 year period. According to this view, the gospel spreads across the earth to such an extent that society is kind of just like totally transformed and effectively the two beasts just kind of disappear and they're metaphorically thrown into the lake of fire. Virtually everyone on the planet is Christian. The church effectively rules the world. Christ isn't physically present on the planet, but he effectively rules through his church, his people. The gospel wins. There's a long period of peace and prosperity as a final satanic rebellion at the very end of time he's crushed right my view is sometimes called the a millennial view now that doesn't mean that those who hold to a millennialism reject the idea of the millennium right clearly there is a thousand year period an extended period we don't want to simply dismiss it or totally avoid it we don't reject the idea that there is a millennium, but we see, it, we see it not as something to occur in the future, but a present reality. We are in the thousand year period right now. We're not waiting for Satan to be bound in some future point in time and then the millennium begins. He's already, he's already been bound. Satan's already been bound. Why do I say that? Well, there are other parts of Scripture which support this view. Um, think of the time. This is why I asked Nicole to read Mark chapter 3 and verse 20 and following. There was a time in the Gospels, right, where Jesus had been performing miracles and casting out demons and, and some of his enemies are saying to Jesus, hey, he's doing it by the devil. And Jesus, I'll paraphrase basically what he says, but Jesus to effect basically says, now guys, just, just think about what you're saying for a second. You're saying that I'm casting out demons by the power of the devil. That doesn't really make much sense. Why would the devil fight against his own allies, the demons? A kingdom divided cannot stand. Now let me tell you, Jesus says, what's really happening here. He basically says, and I'm paraphrasing, suppose there was a really, really strong man and he's passionate about protecting his stuff, his, his home, but you want to go into his home and plunder all his stuff, like take all his stuff away. Um, you don't just walk into the strong man's home because otherwise you're kind of going to get hurt, yeah? Unless you're massive. But you know, like the point is, strong man, Protecting your stuff, you don't just walk in and go, yeah, man, I'll have your stuff. You're going you're gonna to get hurt. Now, what you do is you bind him up first, and once you've bound him, then you go and plunder his stuff. That's what's happening now. That's what Jesus is saying in the Gospels. I've bound Satan, and that's why I'm able to release people from demonic possession. And that was already happening to some extent when Jesus was on the planet. And it decisively happened in Jesus' sin-smashing, slavery to Satan-crushing death on the cross when Satan's power was comprehensively beaten. Revelation tells us at that moment, Satan was hurled down out of heaven. We can go to Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out the 72 disciples to spread the good news of Jesus' coming kingdom, and they come back absolutely stoked, right? They're on fire. They're like, hey, Jesus, even, even the demons submit to us in your name, yeah? And Jesus replies, I saw Satan falling 
like lightning from heaven. Satan is unable to stop the kingdom of God advancing through the proclamation of the gospel. I think that's the meaning of verse 3, of him being kept for a thousand-year period from deceiving the nations. He hasn't given up. He's still playing. He's still trying to stop people from believing, but he can't thwart the spread of the gospel as the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. I know this from my own experience. When I first read the Bible, it it just didn't make sense to me at all. But then I read it again, and I knew people were praying that I would come to know the good news of Jesus through the scriptures, and my eyes were opened and my life was transformed. I remember a a guy coming to church in the past. um, A friend had invited him. This guy was super reluctant to come to church He knew that the church we were part of had like contemporary Christian music. He hated contemporary Christian music, one of the hymns. Didn't like our contemporary stuff. He liked the traditional stuff. He didn't like the fact that all the people up the front looked normal, didn't wear clerical collars and robes and gowns and things like that. He wanted the robes and the gowns. But the guy who was preaching mainly at that church, his name was Paul, as Paul was preaching, this guy just couldn't, he couldn't stop listening. And he kept coming back. He kept coming back. And then he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan can't stop it. Some of us, I reckon, would be able to share similar stories. And these stories are replicated all over the world as the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth. That's why I'm a Christian optimist. As the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, individuals will be transformed. Villages will be changed. Even societies revolutionized through the preaching of the gospel. And it's in this period that Christians reign with Jesus Verse 4, I saw another newsreel. I saw thrones, John says, on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. Here are people, followers of Jesus, who have been martyred, beheaded for, fo- for following the Lord Jesus. And now they reign with Jesus. Is John the Apostle saying that only martyrs will reign with Jesus? No. One of the very striking things as you look at the book of Revelation is that there are not two types of Christians. Paul Barnett, who wrote a really helpful short commentary on the book of Revelation, says this, For John, there is only one kind of Christian, those who are faithful to death. That's what... He's urging to the seven churches in those letters, to all believers, to be faithful unto death. Take up your cross. Follow me, says Jesus. Be willing to give your whole self in service of our King. For some, that may mean martyrdom. For some of us, that might mean martyrdom. I think for most of us, it'll mean being faithful to Jesus until the Lord calls us home. Those who are faithful until the end are victorious. The great appeal of the book of Revelation is to resist temptation, to stand firm, 
to not compromise with the world as we live in occupied territory. And as we do that, we are reigning over Satan and his allies. We're overcoming him. We're proving Christ's victory over him. And we believers right now, right here, we've already been raised with Jesus. That's what I think John's talking about in the first resurrection. The moment we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united to Jesus. Where Jesus is, so are we spiritually. We died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. Spiritually speaking, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 2, we are in the heavenly realms. But for the time being, we live physically in enemy-occupied territory. Won't always be easy in this period, this thousand years. But brothers and sisters, Christ has won. Satan has been bound. And the gospel is advancing. And at the end of the period, there is intense opposition to Christ and his church. The last battle, Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them from battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. And again, right, we think it's going to be carnage. They're all wearing their cocktail dresses and party clothes and lots of stuff, and we've got no weapons. Again, it's an anticlimax, no description of a battle. We're simply told, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, what we're getting in these chapters are different angles of the same reality. Evil comes crashing down when Jesus comes back. Babylon falls, the beast falls, the false prophet falls, Satan cast into burning sulfur, which leaves one last section. Verses 11 to 15, the judgment of the dead. Verse 11, another newsreel. Then I saw a great white throne. It's God's judgment throne. Then verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Just imagine, just imagine a huge room, like bigger than this, right? A huge room, and in the room are all these like angelic scribes scribbling away, and they're recording everything that everyone in this room has said and done or not done, you know? And they're scribbling away. They look at, I'm not going to look at anyone in particular, but they're looking at Sam because he's holding a beautiful little baby. Can't stop looking at these guys. Sorry if I'm like peering at you all the time today. No. And there's a scribe taking down what Sam said and done. There's a scribe taking down what Georgie said and done. Up in this big room, scribbling away all the deeds that we've ever said and done, the things that we're ashamed of, the things that we've kept hidden for years that no one else knows about, they're in the book. Every time we've obeyed the beast, sided with Satan, every time we've lied to a customer, joined others in ridiculing the teaching of the Bible, denied Jesus, every time we've shrunk back, every time we've been seduced by the profit and pleasure and popularity that's offered by Babylon, I'll give you a good time. Every single time, it's in the book. Verse 13. 
And so it's a solemn moment, isn't it? When your book is taken down and you stand before your creator for judgment. Your name's read out. I'll have Sam's book, please. But before any of our books are opened, another angel is asked to look in another book. Not the book of deeds, but the book of life. He looks carefully. And if our name is in the book of life, the angel says, no, Father, no. No, his name's here. No, Father, no, her name's here. And that's the end of judgment. We're safe. We're safe if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has dealt with every thought, every word, every deed. There's nothing to fear. So, of course, the big question is, is your name in the book of life? Have you trusted Jesus? To stand before your creator on your own, facing the contents of that book of deeds, I can't say any other way, will end terribly. But if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, it will be wonderful. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Have you said, Father, I'm sorry for rejecting you. I don't deserve to enter your heaven. And Father, if you're going to sort out the world and deal with evil, then I need to be sorted out as well. But I'm trusting in the Lamb who was slain for me. Jesus, I'm trusting in Jesus. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? You might have been coming here for weeks, you might have been coming here for one week and you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't know how to. I want you to chat to me today or someone you're here with and you trust. And for those of us whose name is in the book of life, what an encouragement. How wonderful. Yeah, amen. Yeah, the world is around us. is saying, look, you might as well have just fit in. You're in occupied territory. Probably not going to change for a while. It's a thousand years, long time. Just go along with it. Join in. God says, look at the newsreels. Look at the future. Remember what's coming. Evil will be no more. You'll be with the Lord forever. Every time we sing a song in church, which draws our heart's affection and our mind's attention to that moment when we see Jesus and enjoy him forever. I just can't help but kind of like, I almost can't sing because it's just going to be wonderful. I've said this before, I think, and this is off script and I'm in trouble now, but look at the time, flip. Um, anyway, um, you know, 
I imagine when we get to the new creation, right, we're all going to be gathered there, evil's dealt with, it's all sorted, and we're going to be in the great city. And I don't know, I don't really like the South Australian Christmas pageant. I don't get along to it very much, but just go with me. I'm imagining it'd be a bit like that. We're all like down King William Street, and we're all along the barricades, you know, and we're all looking over, you know, and I don't know, Josh and Kim's cart comes along from their business in the new creation. I don't know, whatever it is, right? A few carts come forward, but we're not there really to see all the things coming first. We're there to see, we're there to see the king. And we're all like, I don't know, wrestling over each other. We're probably doing it very nicely. Oh, no, you go first. No, you go first. You know, you go first in the new creation, you know. Um, but, you know we're all leaning over. And then, like, someone says, I can see him. I can see him. Can you see him? I can see the king. And I don't know, it's going to be extraordinary, right? He'll just come. And it will just be the most awesome thing to see the Lord Jesus face to face and enjoy him forever. Is your name in the book of life? I really hope it is. Should we pray? Just a moment for anyone who is here today thinking, I really want my name in the book of life. God, please have mercy on me, a sinner. And also a moment for others of us to say, Lord, forgive me for compromises. Help me by your spirit to keep trusting Jesus, to patiently endure, whatever the cost, knowing that I'll see Jesus one day and enjoy him forever. And so, loving Father, we bring these, our prayers, to you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.